Good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Thank you for coming to join with us today. Especially warm welcome to you if you're visiting with us. If this isn't normally where you would be at 11 o'clock on a Sunday, uh, we're delighted that you've come to be with us today. And to those who are watching online, we're still restricted on numbers in the building. So to you who are watching at home or wherever, thank you so much for joining with us today. We pray that you, along with everyone here, would be blessed by God for being here together. I want to start by reading a single verse of Scripture. This is found in the New Testament. It is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the hardest things that we have faced as a church family here over the last year has, strangely enough, been the inability to sing when we've come together on a Sunday. And we're pleased to say that we are now um, allowed to sing again. And why has it been such a difficulty? Well, the reason is because actually Christians have so much to sing about. Um, we have so much to sing about, and that is the, the sort of tone that Peter uses in that verse there. It's a tone of worship. He just exclaims, praise be to God. And why? Because he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have much to sing about because we sing about a Savior who is not dead, who is not merely some artifact of history, but who has been raised from the dead. And all who believe in Him share in that resurrection life. Please take a seat. And you will find our Bible reading this morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It is the most um, famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, and for very good reason. It's, it's one of those explicit parts of the Old Testament that looks forward to the coming of Jesus and speaks very precisely about what it would mean for God to rescue His people from their sins. Isaiah was a prophet. He delivered his message to ancient Israel, the people who God had rescued from slavery in Egypt. He had made them His nation, His people, but they kept turning away from God. And because of that, they were going to go back into slavery. They were going to be deported to a foreign land again. But God's promise was to bring them back. God's promise was that they would know Him again. And the biggest hurdle was not getting them back to the land. That was the easy bit. The biggest issue was how do you rescue them from their sin? How would God do that? Well, God reveals in this book of Isaiah this figure who is called God's servant, the one who would be faithful to God where Israel had been unfaithful, the one who would live up to what God's people had never been. And if you were with us last week, we saw that when God's servant would come, he would be the unrecognized servant, rejected by human beings because of his ordinariness, 
and because of his terrible suffering. Well, we're going to read some more in Isaiah 53 now. Andrew's going to come and read for us the first six verses. Thank you. Good morning. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Our focus this morning is on verses 4 through to 6. But Andrew read from verse 1 to help us see that, actually, this part of this servant song shows us that there, there, there needs to be a change of perspective. What is what is the, the analysis of the servant in verses 1, 2, and 3 changes when you come to verse 4, and we'll see the way in which it changes. There, there's this rejection, there's this despising of the servant, and then from verse 4, we begin to see something crucial, that this is God's servant in our place. Sometimes we need to look more closely at something, don't we? Not settle for what our assumptions tell us might be correct. It's rather like uh, the poor woman who's uh, become a story told everywhere, the poor woman who gets into trouble, uh, into difficulty swimming in the sea. And so she tries to get the attention of the people on the shore. She screams, she shouts, she waves her arms. And those on the beach... But what do they do? They wave back. If only someone had looked more closely, not gone with their assumptions, they would see that they've misinterpreted the scene entirely. She's drowning, not waving. You need to look more closely. That's part of Isaiah's message to us today when it comes to God's servant, to his son, Jesus Christ. You need to look more closely than what you assume you see. The servant who will come, we, we know that he will come to suffer. That's what he says in verse 4. He took up our pain, bore our suffering. And at first glance, that's how it's interpreted. Those who look on at the pain of this servant, what will they conclude? He's suffering. Why is he suffering? Well, look what verse 4 says. Yet, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, 
and afflicted. I suppose what Isaiah is describing here are people who look on at this suffering servant and they say, well, if he's suffering as much as all that, then he must have deserved it. That's the scene here. That's the assumption that's made here. How can he claim that God approves of him? How can he claim that he always does the will of God if he's suffering like this? No, surely this is a sign that God hates him. God must be punishing him. Indeed, you turn to the New Testament, to the Gospels, and we are given multiple times an account of the sufferings of God's servant, Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross to die. And as he hung there, those who looked on, they gave their verdict. Listen to these words from Matthew's Gospel. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You see the rationale in their thinking? It's exactly what Isaiah described. How could someone claim to be God's chosen one and yet suffer so horribly? And this was the big problem, if I can call it that, that the early Christians had. They were trying to convince the world that the only hope for humanity was found in a man who had suffered and died the most degrading and shameful death possible. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about the offense of the cross, the offensiveness of the cross. And you see, it didn't matter what people's backgrounds were, whether they were Jewish or non-Jewish, they were all united in this, that the cross was a pretty offensive thing. You know, if if your eldest son had been crucified, it wasn't something you bragged about, it was something you hid away in shame. And so whatever folks' backgrounds were, this was a stumbling block. You're trying to tell me that the most important person who's ever been in the world was crucified on a Roman cross because, well, they'd been brought up to think, you see someone dying in that way, then he must have deserved it. There's nothing here for me. And I suppose in a similar way today, how many people think that um, what we are doing in here today, what we're reading about here today, is really of no significance at all. Some might look on and say, are you trying to tell me that a man who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, who was crucified as a criminal, means anything to me? That he's important to me in any way? And the truth is, so many have made up their minds before they've even heard about Jesus. But Ayataya's message to you today is you need to look more closely at Jesus than that. You need to look more closely. Don't assume that you've seen everything that you need to see. Look again. Look at how the perspective on the suffering servant changes in this chapter of Isaiah. 
while they were thinking that the servant suffered because God disapproved of him, in actual fact, this is how verse 4 opened, wasn't it? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Well, you see how the perspective has changed now. In that part of verse 4, it was he's suffering for his iniquities. He's suffering because he's done something wrong, and the perspective changes. They look closer. He suffered for our iniquities. Isaiah says you need to look again at Jesus, and he says you need to see yourself in Jesus. It might seem like a strange thing to say, but he says you need to see yourself in Jesus. Earlier in the Bible, you find the story of King David, Israel's greatest king. Yet, even King David was a flawed man, and there is this appalling story of how he falls into adultery, and he even has a man killed to try and cover up his sin. And it seems that David thinks that he's got away with it. But of course, God has seen everything. And so God sends his prophet Nathan to David, and Nathan tells David this story about a poor man who had nothing but a lamb. And he cared for and and raised this lamb as if it was part of his own family, raised it alongside his own children, and he loved this creature. Well, there was also a rich man who had more sheep on the hill than he could count. But when the rich man had a visitor come for tea, he took the poor man's lamb, slaughtered it, and they had a feast eating that. Well, you can imagine David, he's he's absolutely appalled by the story. He says, you know, the man who did this, he deserves to die. Well, we can can well make me say that. He says, you must pay back what he's done fourfold and never be forgiven. And then Nathan says, David, you're that man. You are the man. David, you need to see yourself in the story. It pictures you and what you've done. And in a similar sort of way, Isaiah says, you need to see yourself in Jesus. You need to understand that Jesus' suffering is not because he deserved it. His suffering is because you deserved it. I mean, what is the language that Isaiah uses here? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. It's the language of substitution. He's saying that that this servant has been substituted in your place. And Isaiah goes out of his way to make that inescapable in these verses. He did this for you. He did this for you. He did that for you. His claim is that when you look to Jesus on the cross, you are not just looking at the death of a man. You're not looking at something that is just some object lesson in how to be loving, as some might claim. No, he's saying that something happens on that cross. Something takes place there. And in fact, if Jesus' death on the cross is to have any significance whatsoever 
then something has to take place. Something has to be accomplished. I mean, if you believe that Jesus dying on the cross was simply him teaching us how to love, how to lay down our life uh, for our friends, then that actually only makes sense if his death achieves something. I mean, I might jump out into the road while shouting, I love you, and be hit by a truck and die, but I've not demonstrated any meaningful love. I've not achieved anything other than throw my life away. But if I jump out into the road to push you out of the way of the oncoming truck and I die, then I really have shown love. I really have laid down my life for my friend. So what does Jesus accomplish in his death? Well, it's what some have called the great exchange. God's servant, God's son, his chosen one in whom his soul delights, the perfect one who always hears God perfectly, who always obeys God perfectly, who does God's will perfectly, no sin in him, nothing that he could ever be called to give an account for. He lived the perfect life, and yet here he suffers on a cross. Why? Because he suffered for our sin. The penalty he endures is the penalty we deserved. And the beauty of this exchange is that he on the cross takes all of our sin, all of the stuff that cuts us off from God, and he makes it his own, and he takes all of the consequences. But in exchange, he gives us all of his right standing with God. He joins us to him so that we become one with him. So much so that when God looks on us, the one who believes in Jesus, when God looks on him, God no longer sees the sin, no longer sees the impurity, no longer sees the things that cut us off from knowing him. Instead, he sees this, all of the loveliness of his son. And that's only made possible through Jesus' death as your substitute on the cross. And just look at what Isaiah describes here. I mean, all of the bases are covered. What is it that Jesus deals with? Verse 4, he takes up our pain. Verse 5, he's pierced for our transgressions, the, the, the sins we commit, the times we break God's law. He's crushed for our iniquities, for the, the, the sinful nature that we have within us, he deals with that. Verse 5, still, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. He deals with this, this lack of peace that we have with God, this broken relationship. And by his wounds, we are healed. He deals with our sicknesses. I mean, these things are all of the consequences of sin in the world, pain, suffering, sin, lack of peace with God, sickness and death. And Jesus Christ alone comes to deal with every one of them. 
Again, in Matthew's gospel, we read of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And we're told that that led to a multitude of folks bringing the sick to come and see Jesus. And Matthew records this for us. He healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This healing ministry of Jesus is there to to confirm his identity as God's promised servant. It's as if you see him doing this work and your mind is brought back to Isaiah 53, written 700 years beforehand, to say, yes, this is him. He has come. Well, I suppose it does lead to an important question. If Jesus, through his, through his death on the cross, heals all our diseases, then why do Christians who claim that Jesus died for them, still get sick and die. And uh, the number of walking aids on show in front of me today testify to that truth alone. Why do they still get sick and die? Well, some would answer that question and say, well, these verses tell us that Christians don't need to ever get ill. If there was enough faith, enough prayer, enough belief, then they would be healed of all their sicknesses. I want to say to you today, friends, that's not how the Bible understands this promise. Yes, of course, all who trust in Jesus, for every one of them, every disease will be healed. Every bit of suffering will be taken away, and even death itself will be gone forever. I mean, listen to this picture of the Christian life that John, the apostle, saw. In Revelation 21, he says, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But you see, what John describes there is a reality that comes when Jesus returns when he comes to reign and he brings in this new heaven, new earth. That's when this fully takes place. And we can be sure that uh, this promise is not that a Christian need never be ill. Well, because all of the apostles died, every Christian will die of something. You can be sure of that. Now, of course, God heals today We pray for healing, and we have had times where we've had cause to rejoice that God has restored someone from sickness to health, and how wonderful that is. But when we see that, friends, we are being graciously being given a glimpse, a foretaste of what's to come. It's as if God graciously whets our appetite, doesn't he, for that day when sin and suffering and sickness are gone forever. And that's only possible. That day can only possibly come because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so when you look to Jesus and you see him dying on the cross, you must see yourself. He became one of us, a human being. He lived a life of obedience to God, an obedience that led him all the way to the cross where he suffered in the place of sinners. 
We close with verse 6 today of Isaiah 53. Isaiah has said, you need to look more closely at Jesus. He said, you need to see yourself in Jesus. And when you do that, you'll see that you need Jesus. You personally need him. It's, um, I suppose it's not terribly civilized to go around calling people sinners. Some people take exception to that kind of language, this idea that they could uh, ever have any disapproval expressed towards them about who they are or what they are. The idea that, that, that we could ever need something as horrible as a man bleeding to death on a cross to be right with God, it's, it's downright offensive. But verse 6 closes this stanza of this servant song, and it closes on a personal note. Isaiah says, don't you dare think that this doesn't apply to you. Don't you dare think this doesn't apply to you. Do some self-examination. Look at what he says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, or more literally, every one of us has turned to his own way. I mean, this is the root of what's wrong with the world. There is a God in heaven who made us, and we have gone astray. We have not followed in his way. We have not honored God, but turned to our own way. And how are we going to overcome this problem? How do we get back to him? Well, the only solution that's presented is right there. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that servant, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says there's enough here in God's servant for you, even you, to be right with God. There's enough here even for your loved ones to be right with God. If you're going to be right with God, you can be today. If you're going to have that hope of a glorious day free from all of the horrors of the world we live in, then you can know that hope today. If you ever want to find the meaning of life and why you were created, you can know that today. But you don't find any of these things without looking first to the cross of Jesus Christ and answering this most basic question, what do you see there? What do you see? A religious fable? A circumstance of history? Or do you see the Son of God dying to save a lost and broken world? Dying to rescue sinners like us from our sins so that we might know him. And you notice that there's not a bit of this that says, here's what you must do to be right with God. Simply Isaiah points us to the servant who will come. And it's my job here today to point you, every one of us, to the servant who has come, who did die on that cross outside Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago, and to say, put your trust in him. God's not keeping a tally of, of, of how many good things you've done versus how many bad things you've done. He's saying, look to my son, 
Because that's where all your transgressions, all your iniquities, all of your failings, and even all of your physical weaknesses will be sorted out in him. Believe in Jesus, God's servant in our place. Thank you again for being with us today. Just to say if anyone has any questions or they'd like to follow up on anything that's been mentioned today, or if you'd be interested to learn more about the Christian faith, we're very happy to run a Christianity Explored course. Uh, Please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. Um, We're going to say the words of the the grace together. This is a long-standing Christian tradition where we say this word as a prayer to one another as we go out into the world. So let's do that now. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.